Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor, this opportunity to gather together as family in a faith that you've given each one of us as individuals, but also corporately as a church, Father, to build unity that brings glory to you. Father, what a privilege this is. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love, and all the things gathered unto our account, things we just don't deserve, Father, but by the merits of your Son, our Lord and Savior, uh, you see fit to impart them to us. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this evening, that you return them to us as uh, soon as possible so that we might fellowship with them. Your will be done, of course. And also we pray for those that are still lost, uh, maybe this evening in light of our missionaries overseas in India, Father, we just pray that hearts be changed, people be humbled so that they might be saved and we have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. What a tre tremendous privilege it is to spread the good news. Father, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, Part 23. The past few lessons have uh, begun with a probing question up here on the board. How are we sanctified? You might say, well, how does this, what does this have anything to do with undistracted devotion to the Lord? Well, when we're sanctified, our devotion increases. And that's the angle uh, from Holy Scripture that the Spirit's been given us. How are we sanctified? What most Christians do is make gross estimations about how God goes about sanctifying them. Why? Because they really honestly have no other choice. Most Christians I know don't read their Bibles, at least not regularly. Most Christians I know, I'm talking about people that call themselves Christians, at best have a devotional on the back of their toilet. And that's, the, that's really the, uh, the crux of their spiritual uh, learning, uh, which is a shame. Most Christians make gross estimations about how God goes about sanctifying them. The most common in our area, at least, is the religious estimation of sanctification, which always has it backwards. Do these works and you'll be sanctified. Many self-professing Christians don't even know what sanctification is. At best, they understand the concept of some kind of spiritual growth. And we looked at Psalm 110, or 111.10, Proverbs 4.7, and uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10. Go to Proverbs 111.10. The Spirit has a little bit more to say on each one of these verses this evening. Proverbs, uh, excuse me, Psalms 111.10. Psalms 111.10. Psalm 111, verse 10. <clears throat> Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. I like that second verse there, or that second um, 
part of, of verse 10, the second statement there, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. And so you see this sort of um, thing up here on the board. I'll give you it this way. Those who do his commandments, what the word tells us is that there is a difference between those with good understanding and fools. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. You see, these things come together, in other words. Um, so the word tells us that there is a difference between those with good understanding and fools. We're going to get to Proverbs 18.2 in a second. Wisdom is understanding that obedience is good for self. Wisdom is understanding. This is, again, good understanding of all those who do his commandments. That's wisdom. That's good understanding. Um, wisdom is understanding that obedience is good for self. Fools, however, reject this concept. Let's look at the scriptural reference. Go to uh, Proverbs 18, verse 1. Proverbs 18, verse 1. So there we have a good understanding in Psalm 111. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Again, there's a difference. The word tells us there's a difference between those with good understanding and fools. Wisdom is understanding that obedience is good for self. Fools reject this. Proverbs 18, verse 1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding. You see it? A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. And keep in mind what we just read in Psalm 111. That's the exact opposite. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Okay, back to our previous point now how we are sanctified up here on the board. This is where we ended up with Psalm 111.10. Again, most Christians make gross estimations about how God goes about sanctifying them. The most common in our area, at least, is the religious estimation of sanctification. Many self-professing Christians don't even know what sanctification is. At best, they understand some concept of spiritual growth. So we just looked at Psalm 111, verse 10, uh, and compared that to Proverbs 18.2. Let's look at the other two references now. Go to Proverbs 4.5. We'll start there. Proverbs 4, verse 5. So the Spirit has a lot to say about this topic of how we are sanctified and how it relates to wisdom even. Proverbs 4, verse 5. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, that's wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. That's what a, a wise person understands. That this, this is the method. Beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. The very start, if you would, of wisdom is to acquire it. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. So let's take it. We're going to take a trip down memory lane here and grab a key principle from a message dated December 2017 titled, What is Good? If you remember this, what is good and who gets to define it? Remember those series? What is this and who gets to define it? Well, the first one was what is good and who gets to define it? Well, that's a 
quite a revelation because the average Christian, again, says, well, this is good, but there's actually no holy scripture in support of what they uh, propose as good. They just speculate. They say, well, it feels good, and it feels right, and everything's this emotional garbage. It doesn't matter what you feel. What does the scripture say? Does scripture say it's good? Does God say it's good? Because that's what, and that's how we find out what is good. So that was our series, What is Good and Who Gets to Define It? So this is a borrowed principle from that lesson uh, back in December of 2017. Wisdom. When we find what is truth, then we find the definition for good. When we find what is truth, then we find the definition for good. A lot of lies out there. Some person will tell you this is good. Another will tell you that's good. The only place where you can find out what's good is right here. So we already read the first reference. Let's see the second now. Go to James 3.17. So we're on a borrowed principle from a year ago, roughly. James 3.17. Again, this was from a series titled, What is Good and Who Gets to Define It? <clears throat> the principle on the board, when we find what is truth, then we find the definition for good. James 3.17 reads, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by peace, uh, excuse me, in peace by those who make peace. Again, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, the start of sound wisdom is to get it. Up here on the board, I'll give you the amplified classic of Proverbs 4.7. That was the first passage we read uh, in this principle. Proverbs 4.7, the amplified classic. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom, skillful and godly wisdom. For skillful and godly wisdom is the principal thing. That's what you're after, in other words. And with all you have gotten, get understanding, discernment, comprehension, and interpretation. With all you have gotten, get understanding. What are we trying to understand here? What's the instigating passage? How are we sanctified? That's what we're asking. That's the question that's been on the table now for weeks or two. How are we sanctified? Well, I want to know, but I want to know the truth. And I, know, I want to know what's good. And to borrow from a year ago, this is what we learned. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom, skillful and godly wisdom, for skillful and godly wisdom is the principal thing. And with all you have gotten, get understanding, discernment, comprehension, and interpretation. Again, the principle from what is good and who gets to define it dated last December was this up here on the board. When we find what is truth, then we find the definition for good. And so we are currently endeavoring on this particular question. How are we sanctified? Well, I want the truth because I want a good definition for sanctification and how we're sanctified. Where do we go? To the truth. The truth is what? The Word of God. So who gets to define what is good? He does. 
Where do we find it? In the Word of God. That's the borrowed principle from about a year ago. Again, how are we sanctified? Most Christians make gross estimations outside of the Bible. That's the point. You cannot go outside of the Bible. You have to find the truth, and then you know it's good. You want, you want to know the answer to the question on the board? You have to go to the truth. Most Christians, though, make gross estimations about how God sanctifies them. Again, religion is in there. Most self-professing Christians don't even know what sanctification is. Ask one. Ask somebody, I don't know, ask somebody that you know that says they're a Christian. Ask them about what sanctification is. What does the Bible have to say about sanctification? Chances are they're going to look like a deer in headlights. Seriously, they're going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. How could that possibly be? Then what do you think God's doing in your life? Jesus loves me. No, 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 cut it out. What is God's plan for you? Uh, I don't know. i got to be a good boy or a good girl so I can get into heaven. You see how the garbage is there? It's like nobody even knows the actual language that's in the Bible. So how do you actually understand what it means to grow up in Christ? Even if you say you have an estimation of what um, it means to, to spiritually mature, where do you get your definition from? How do you know it's good? Because only the Bible has the answers. But so few, quote, Christians even read their Bibles. That's the whole point. All right, the last reference from the point on the board, go to Proverbs 9, verse 10. Proverbs 9, verse 10. <clears throat> this is very, very important for all of us. We're going to ask huge, lofty questions like, how are we sanctified? Well, we better direct ourselves to the right place where we can find good answers, where we find truth. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, get to know the Lord. You understand how He operates? Get to know Him. Know His heart. Understand his essence. Understand his character. Up here on the board, Proverbs 9.10 in the Amplified, just for the sake of clarity. The reverent fear of the Lord, that is, worshiping him and regarding him as truly awesome, is the beginning in the preeminent part of wisdom. Love, 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 love that. Love, love, love it. The reverent fear of the Lord, that is, worshiping Him and regarding Him as truly awesome, is the beginning in the preeminent part of wisdom. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the average Christian has very little respect for God. That's why they're so easily or so quickly able to say, well, this, our God's the same as the one the, the Buddhists follow, or the Muslims, or the, it's all one God. That's an absolute insult. That is absolutely disrespecting the awesome God of the universe. So people don't even start in the right frame of reference. They don't even start in the right ballpark. They put God in some box over there. They want him to be something he's not. And what does the Bible say? It says, The reverent fear of the Lord is the beginning in the preeminent part of wisdom. 
the preeminent part. In other words, if you don't get that right, all else is off. Pre, get it? If you don't get that part right, all bets are off. Because you have a perverted uh, estimation of the holy God of the universe. And that's what I see in Christendom, is nobody has a fear or a true respect for the only holy God. And if you don't have that as your anchor, what? I mean, come on. It doesn't matter what you're tethered to. You're going to be whispering around, right? Listen to the trickery and the, the, the doctrines of demons, which is what I see most Christians doing. Just because you wear a T-shirt or have a cross around your neck doesn't mean you're a believer. So the reverent fear of the Lord is the beginning and the preeminent part of wisdom. It's starting point and its essence and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding and spiritual insight. So, what the Spirit's been getting at with all of this is simple, up here on the board. The blessing of wisdom. It's good to acquire knowledge and wisdom, for it gives us understanding. This righteousness results in fruit, namely peace. Remember the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it's good to acquire knowledge and wisdom, for it gives us understanding. This righteousness results in fruit, namely peace. And what the Spirit's been protecting us against is the temptation to do as so many so-called Christians do. That is to skip the learning aspect of obedience and speculate on God and His plans regarding sanctification. That's what I see. Maybe you see something different. I doubt it. That's what I see most so-called Christians doing. They skip the learning aspect of obedience. In other words, the Bible tells us to learn the Word of God. That would imply this right here. But we just said and we if you go around, you can observe very quickly that most people don't read their Bible. So immediately, they're already skipping the learning part of obedience. And what's left? What's, if you don't have the actual knowledge, what do you have? You, you can only speculate. When it comes time to apply some kind of wisdom in a situation, and you don't have the wisdom <clears throat> because you haven't been obeying, in learning, then what's left? Speculate. Get, grab some dice. Crapshoot. Right? I would argue that's how most Christians function. Yet Jesus himself said, Matthew 4, Thou shalt not put God to the test. It's not our job to throw dice in the presence of God. God says, I can prepare you. The pre-counsel from the Word of God says, the first part of wisdom is to acquire wisdom. Spend your time obeying, which starts with learning. So, so many Christians skip all that. And so what are they left with? Speculation. Let's put God to the test. And then they blame God when things go wrong. Because, see, God doesn't love me. No, you don't love God. God told you how this whole thing works. 
but you're not really interested. Hence, again, our recurring principle up here on the board, how are we sanctified? Most Christians make gross estimations about how God goes about sanctifying them. And the corollary principle up here on the board is the only place to look for answers is in the Bible. Is in the Bible. Do not make the mistake of making stuff up that appeases your human sensibilities. Remember, human sensibilities never match God's. Isaiah 55, 8. It's one of the first things we should learn in humility, that our ways are not His ways. That we have to be taught His ways. That we can't depend on, uh, or depend on ourselves in the absence of true wisdom. We actually have to have knowledge inserted into our souls so that we have wisdom because that's what builds understanding and comprehension and interpretation as we just read. But if we don't do any of that, what are we, going to, what are we left with? Our own devices, our own sensibilities. Well, it feels right. It feels like, you know, it feels like something Jesus would do since he was such a kind man. It feels right. heck does that even mean it feels right who cares what it feels like is it right or not i don't know because i don't have any scripture i've got no wisdom the only place to look for answers is in the bible so don't make those other mistakes so the next time and without hesitation that you have a question about how to respond to some situation in your life or you have a doubt about this or that, or you're just having a bad day of temptation, I mean, who hasn't had one of those? I have the soundest advice I can possibly give you. You ready? Open your Bible and start reading. That's honestly the soundest advice I can possibly give you. Just open your Bible and start reading. You're in a quagmire of sorts. You're in a situation of sorts, if you will. Open your Bible and start reading. Do you know most Bibles, any decent Bible? Heck, they even have like, this one probably has it. Yeah. Uh, they probably, most good Bibles have topical indexes. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, like look. Star. There's a bunch of verses. Stimulate a bunch of verses. Uh, you get what I'm saying? You have a question about a certain topic, go to the back of your Bible and look it up. So I don't know where to look. Go on the back of your Bible, look up the Word, and look at the Scripture. Oh, that sounds like school. What a brat. <laughs> Open your Bible and start reading. Everybody's got an excuse. If I told you there was a million dollars, if you find the right verse, there's a little code I wrote next to it. You find it, you're going to get a million dollars. You can enter that code on this website, you're going to get a million bucks. I'm going to get scammed, but you know what I mean. Oh, my word, you guys would be like this. Where is it? First thing you do, you'd find a way, right? Of course you would. Not you, I mean. You know, those people out there. <laughs> Open your Bible and start reading. Take what you're hearing from this pulpit right now as a lifelong command, because that's what it is. 
Not from me. It's not from Ed Collins. It's from Holy Scripture. And instead of suffering a knee-jerk reaction to the word, you know, command, I don't like the word command. Again, you're being a brat. Remember, go to 1 John 5.3. Go to 1 John 5.3. Instead of having that adolescent knee-jerk reaction to the word command, I mean, God forbid anyone command you to do anything, right? God forbid anyone tell you to do anything. 1 John 5, verse 3. Remember this. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And you know what? His commandments are not burdensome. They're really not. I'll give you the easiest translation of 1 John 5, 3. It's called the Living Bible up here on the board. I don't often quote from it because it can get kind of haywire, but you get the point. Up here on the board, 1 John 5, 3 in the Living Bible reads, Loving God means doing what He tells us to do. And really, that isn't hard at all. <laughs> Loving God means doing what He tells us to do. And really, that isn't hard at all. It's really not. Don't just say, okay here. Rather, take the time to think about why God can say this is true. In other words, don't just say, okay, you know, His commandments are not burdensome. Don't say, okay. Like, think about it. Why can the holy God of the universe, the one who inspired the Word of God, say that that's true? Ask yourself that question. How does God say His commands are not burdensome? How can He say that to you? And then ask why this same God inspired the following point regarding disobedience. Up here on the board, same spirit inspires these lessons, remember. Same God that inspired the Word of God. The same God who said, my commandments are not burdensome. He also inspired this point. The blessings litmus test. If what you are doing is taking you away from your first love, it isn't from God. It isn't from God. Jesus said very simply, if I remember correctly, follow me. Two words. Follow me. The implication is you don't follow anybody else. You don't follow the world especially. Because a friend of the world is an enemy of God. So says Holy Scripture. He says, follow me. So if you're not following him, your first love, then you know what? It's not good. And if you disagree with that, open up your Bible and find out what is good and who gets to define it. And you'll find out again. You'll come full circle and realize that what is good is following Jesus. Understanding the Holy One like we just read, is good. Acquiring godly wisdom that leads to understanding is good. Obedience, which means learning as a first step, is good. Disobey any of this? Hmm. What do you expect? 
So if what you are doing is taking you away from your first love, it isn't from God, no matter how well it matches with your plans of success or how good it feels or how admired you are for it. Those are all traps. God's foremost command is to love Him first, then others. We read Mark 12, 28-31 already. Here's been our loosely fitting working framework for our series, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, up here on the board. Just a string of pearls that I've noted as we've gone through this 23 parts. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. Obedience is the evidence of it, ensuring righteousness. Devotion is the focus activity. Peace and joy are the results. As has always been the case, though, with this congregation, especially, practicality is at the foremost or the forefront of our messages. And here's where we ended on Sunday, on that note. In other words, it's not just that it's never enough for the Spirit with this congregation just to leave it on the table as doctrine. He says, let's get this going in our lives. Let's put it into our spiritual engines like fuel, and, and let's, let's move. Let's see what happens with this stuff. Let's see how it motivates us down the road, right? Let's see how it sanctifies us, because that's what sanctification is. It's movement. This is where we ended on Sunday, the sphere of love. Anyone abiding in the sphere of love wants to do what love desires. In the case of children of God, it is to obey their Father in heaven. I didn't say this. I know it to be true because I have certain wisdom on this topic. But the Bible is the one that lays out these precepts. Anyone abiding in the sphere of love wants to do what love desires. In the case of children of God, it is to obey their Father in heaven. Why? Because we love Him. That's why. And this really does. I know people don't like to go this far back on the sanctification timeline, if you want to call it that. But we have to. We have to go all the way to the beginning. Because if you have no love for God, and you have no desire whatsoever to obey Him, there might be a deeper problem, as I would argue is the case with way too many Christians. I don't, even think, I don't even think we should be talking about sanctification with most of these people, experientially. I think most Christians need to be talking about positional sanctification. That's what I believe. Because the gospel that they hang and they cling to is garbage. It's not even worth the paper it's written on. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Meant to appease human sensibilities. People who are looking to hedge bets. People who are not at all willing to repent or give up the self-life or deny self, as Jesus might say it. True believers will habitually do certain things, as the Bible teaches very clearly. There's a whole practical side to sanctification, starting with the cause-effect relationship between obedience and blessings. Again, there's a very real practical side to sanctification that we've been studying out in Scripture, and it's a double-edged sword. It deals with results, results like this up here on the board. This is an old friend. We're starting to come out of the mine shaft, of course, because we're closing up shop on this series. 
This was way back probably, and I don't even know, probably part 10 maybe or before. Our joy is conditional. Joy in time for a believer is conditioned upon obedience. John 15, 7 to 11, 16, 24. I'll give you John 16, 24 up here on the board. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that, cause and effect and view, your joy may be made full. Obedience in view. Speaking of the practical side of sanctification, let's consider some of our pivotal points from previous parts of the series before we begin wrapping up. Up here on the board. This is an old friend. We spent a good amount of time on this one. Lifestyles. This was more at the beginning of this series, if you recall. Lifestyle versus sin. Too many people try to justify their ungodly lifestyles by focusing on a benign lifestyle instead of the cons consistent sin it produces. That's the age-old game that people play. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I'm not doing anything wrong. Yeah, maybe you're not in terms of the, your neighbor, but for you it might be wrong because it keeps producing sin in your life. So it's your lifestyle Oh, we know, God knows that you know how to confess your sins. And that's a good thing. But what he's asking is what he's been asking as of late over the last few weeks. Excel all the more. Excel still more. More and more. Don't just be satisfied, in other words, with your ability <clears throat> to call out to homo legato, confess sin. What about your lifestyle? What about the thing that consistently produces and puts you in a situation where you're tempted that gives birth to sin? How about we look at that? That seems like the more mature thing to do, right? And that's what the Spirit's been saying. He doesn't let us off the hook, you see. He's like, let's dig a little bit then. Too many people try to justify <clears throat> their ungodly lifestyles by focusing on a benign lifestyle instead of the consistent sin it produces. If you choose to live an evil lifestyle, it is your choice that stands out as the sin, not necessarily the lifestyle. For it may be fine for someone else. That's what the Spirit's saying. Stop playing that game. Stop leaning on this idea that well, there's nothing wrong. I mean, don't we, we read that in all the scripture about eating, with all the taboos of eating back in the day. Paul would say, there's nothing wrong with me eating something that was sacrificed to some idol, because I don't care, these idols don't even exist. Other gods don't even exist. To me, it's nothing. But if it makes my brother stumble, I'm not going to do it. And if I do do it, I sinned. Anything wrong with eating? Nope. But if it makes somebody stumble and I know about it, it's a sin. That's the point. Anything wrong with, this is the, probably the one of the Americans, especially for men, anything wrong with working hard, guys? No. But if you work so hard that it takes you away from your first love, then it becomes a problem. If you work so hard that you don't have ample time to raise your children, now it's a sin. Anything wrong with working hard? Nope, not last time I checked. The Bible says work hard. It's under the Lord. But if it takes you away from Him, now it's a sin. And you know what? You know things that take you away from Him. 
You know it. You, everyone in here has been alive long. Even Sean has been in here alive long enough to know the things that take us away from him. So this isn't rocket science. Everybody becomes a lawyer, don't they? Mm. A lot of amateur lawyers in this world, especially in Christendom. A lot of amateur lawyers. <clears throat> it's funny what we can justify in court. The Spirit of Christ is trying to set us all free, which is in accordance with God's will for all of us. We know this up here in the board. First Timothy 2, 4-6 in the message reads, He wants not only us but everyone saved, you know, everyone to get to know the truth we've learned, that there's one God and only one, and one priest mediator between God and us, Jesus, who offered himself in exchange for everyone held captive by sin to set them all free. I mean, that's the genesis of why he saved us. It's the starting point of sanctification. So that we could be set free. We are free from the penalty, positionally, but experientially we're still under the power and the presence of sin. And it isn't until we're ultimately sanctified that we're rid of these things. And so God's plan is to sanctify us, to move us away from the vestiges, as we like to call them, of sin, to set us free. Our last order of business in this series has been to consider our lifestyles as including our membership in the corporate body. For example, this was from one of our previous lessons up here on the board. Never underestimate the value of this church, my friends. Never underestimate the value of this church. Not just to you, though. It's this last point that precipitated our consideration of North Christian Church, of course, as a corporate body with group responsibilities. For starters... Do not only think of this church in terms of what it can do for you personally. I mean, that might be the predominant thing. That might be the predominant attitude that most people walk in here with. What can I get out of this church? I'm low. I'm feeling bad. It's always about me, 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 me. I started singing. Anyways. It's always about me. You see? I come to church for me. I need you, bald guy, to fill up my tank. I need, I need, I need, I... What about everybody else? This is a corporate body, right? I'm not the only spiritual gift that functions here, hardly. Every one of you has a spiritual gift. And you know what the Bible says? It's for the edification of the church. That's everybody else. So if all you are is a taker, where's your lot in the responsibility as a group? I guess the body, if we're to personify it, is blind in one eye, missing an arm, hobbling because there's a few toes missing. Our bowels are all screwed up. We're a mess because people aren't functioning. People only come to church for what everybody else can do for them. Hmm. The Bible has an awful lot to say about that. So for starters, do not only think of this church in terms of what it can do for you personally. 
I mean, that's one of the reasons I read what I read before class about women's Bible study. You might realize that that's not just about you. I don't get anything out of the Bible studies. Well, you sound like a selfish brat. What about other people that, could, that would benefit and appreciate hearing from you? What about that? Always remember what this church is in terms of facilitating what you can do for others. For others. Up here on the board, on the note of the corporate body, if you truly are devoted to him, then you will be devoted to the church he died for. The church organism is built up through smaller parts functioning as they should. For example, North Christian Church. I honestly think that that's why a lot of people won't come to a church like this is because it's, it's too easy to be singled out. A lot of people, I think, prefer churches with hundreds of people because they can just drift in and out, eat the quiche, eat the leftover Halloween candy, and get the heck out. And it's all about them, you see? They're never singled out. The pastor doesn't even know their name, hardly. Ooh, that seems kind of convenient, doesn't it? It's kind of hard for a shepherd to tap somebody with the rod if they don't even know their name. Hmm. I think that's what goes on in churches. People play this game. It's always about what does the church do for me? What can the church do for me? And it stays that way. And they never mature. They never get out of their adolescent stage, if you would. And so they shuffle churches, and as soon as the Spirit taps them on the head and says, I'm talking to you, they split because they say, oh, I don't want any of this. I don't like this idea of responsibility. I've not liked it my whole life. I want to remain a child. I want everybody to give me stuff. I don't actually want to give of myself to others. <clears throat> That's a very immature uh, way of thinking. It goes, individuals build churches, churches comprise the church, capital C. Up here on the board, <clears throat> true devotion to the Lord is evidenced in all aspects of our lives. This is how it ties back to our message title, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord. What does the corporate body have to do with all this? Right here. True devotion to the Lord is evidenced in all aspects of our lives including church membership and how we pursue fellowship with others of the faith. I think the, there's a, um, a real malady nowadays with um, technology that I personally believe that the, late, the, the more recent generations don't even know how to communicate or relate to human beings. They relate to human beings through text apps or social media where everybody's an avatar or you can ignore someone. If I, if I walk up to you, straight up to you and say, hey, my name's Ed, uh, let's talk. You, you can't do anything, can you? You're going to talk to me. But if I send you a text, hey, my name's Ed, want to talk, you can ignore it for as long as you want until the reruns of Three Stooges is over, until you've done stuff in your face with whatever it is you eat or whatever it is you're doing, I don't really want to know. 
And so people have this sort of insulation between others. But yet, if you read the Bible, if you read the Bible, it's all about personal relationships. It's all about real relationships, starting with God. God doesn't want any insulations or any insulation between you and Him. And He doesn't really want insulation between you and others. He wants you to relate to each other. He wants you to act like real humans, not avatars on some social network or, you know, insulated away through some phone app. I know. That's why churches are failing everywhere. Because the next generations could give a crap about anybody but themselves. It's pretty much that simple. And the whole premise of a church is that we care about each other. That's the entire premise of a church, is that we come together and encourage one another for as long as it's called today, not forsaking assembling together, as some do. Why? Because there's real value in relating to each other as human beings. But if you're a self-absorbed jackass, you want none of that. And so the best you might do is go to a mega church where it might as well be insulation. Large crowds. I've, I used to deliver messages and speeches to very large crowds. And once you get above, like, I want to say five to ten people, there's this magic that happens. If I'm sitting in a boardroom and there's ten people or less, I'm engaged with them. They're going to ask me questions. They're going to look me straight in the eye. It's kind of nerve-wracking a little bit, especially if you don't know what the heck you're talking about. But if there's a... 200 people in an audience. You know what? It's like magic. The lights come on. It's like, there's a buffer. Nobody asks me questions. I just look over the top of their heads. It's easier, believe it or not, because there's no intimacy. And that's what a church like this does. Look how intimate this setting is right now. You can't really escape (laughs) the things that the Spirit's saying to you right now, can you? No, you really can't. And that's the beauty of a church like this. Because in a church like this, I believe this is where you grow. I'm not quite sure how you grow at the same rate in a mega church. I just don't understand it. I don't know how it works. I don't know how the heck a pastor even has that many people under him. But anyways, I digress. Nonetheless, true devotion to the Lord is evidenced in all aspects of our lives, including church membership and how we pursue fellowship with others of the faith. As the individuals go, so goes the organization. So, I just want to read some final passages that lend themselves to our primary topic of undistracted devotion to the Lord. Go to um, John 15.1. I'm just going to read now. My preaching is over. I know, sad, huh? I heard giggles. That's, I don't know what to think. John 15, verse 1. This is just to build us up, to pad our lessons before we close up. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. He might be pruning you right now. He might be saying, ouch, that hurts. 
Well, imagine if you were a plant. You get your branches pruned off, little you know sprigs and all that stuff snipped off. It would hurt if you were a plant. He prunes it, though, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. It's interesting because back in October of 2015, we kicked off the gospel reload with a passage that is dead set in front of us right now. Go to Matthew 13.3. Matthew 13.3. All the way back in October of 2015. This was a big part of the gospel reload. Matthew 13, verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell in the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Of course, verse 9 implies that some cannot hear because they don't have ears to hear. Go to Matthew thirteen twenty-one. Matthew 13, 21. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. That's a picture of the church, my friends. Not capital C, because not everybody that says they're a Christian is a member of capital C. But even like little C church, like North Christian church. As soon as times get tough, as soon as they get challenged by truth, they fall away. Those in the church that fall away shortly after a so-called conversion may have been putting on a front, maybe even hedging a bet. But God is never confused, nor is he mocked. An unbeliever will never be truly devoted to the Lord. An unbeliever will never be truly devoted to the Lord, only themselves, or at best, others who they might love, let's say. But they will never truly be devoted to the Lord. The proof is that they abandon lampstands like North Christian Church when the going gets tough. That's the proof. I didn't say that. That's the word of God. I did not say that, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody who's been here and left. I'm just saying this is what the word of God says. Believers are ultimately devoted to him. Remember, he never lets you go. You might whine and moan for a little bit, but you cannot be lost. An unbeliever will never experience that. Go to 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. 
So sadly enough, I mean, there might be someone hearing my voice right now that fits this bill. I don't know. I don't think I really want to know because it breaks my heart to think about it. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, not everyone's a believer who's in a church. Not everyone's a believer who's in a church. We just read in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower and the soil. Sometimes a seed takes a quick root and it, and it sprouts up and you're like, whoa, yeah, all right, all right. I'm thinking of someone right now. I don't want to name names. Yay, and for like six months they're on fire and then poof, they're gone. What happened? No roots. It wasn't good soil. The soil was bad. It was thin or something. Too much to deal with yet. Too rocky. Too much left uh, in the conversion process. Too much clearing away. Too much repentance left. Too much um, coming to grips with some aspect of themselves. And so they either get choked out or they get pulled back into the world or whatever it is. We see that in the church. I mean, I certainly see it from my vantage point. If you've been here for any length of time, you've probably seen it, and you might be thinking of one or more people yourself. Saying, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. They come in, they're on fire, and then they split. And it's not like they go into another church. They just literally go back to where they came from. Back to the, the self-life. Again, the corporate litmus test, when a church looks at individual congregants, uh, the corporate litmus test is holy scripture. Don't take my opinion, don't even take your your own opinion necessarily. What does the Holy Bible say about the litmus test? What's the um, nature of a believer, in other words? Do they stick around? I mean, why are they even in a church in the first place? Honestly, are they only here for themselves, like 24-7? Is it just about them all the time? And when the church doesn't live up to their expectations, they split? What does that say? I don't see the love of God in that person. Not at all. I see the exact opposite. I see a love for self. I mean, let's face it. There's a lot of um, goodness that goes on in a church, right? Let's face it. I mean, we're, we're, we're not that big of a church, but we even help people. I know people have come in, and we've helped them even financially. And then, you know, we kind of put our foot down. We say, okay, enough's enough. You know, teach a man to fish type thing. And when you cut it off, they're gone. What happened? I've had it with the music ministry. People come here, they want to sing. I say, no, let's not sing anymore. They're gone. Why? I couldn't sing anymore. Well, who the hell are you here for? Are you here to sing or are you here to learn? Are you here to serve others? What is the deal? Who's this about anyways? You follow what I'm getting at? Music drives me crazy, by the way. Worst part of the ministry, hands down. No offense, Brian. Not you. Something about musicians, I don't know, they drive me bananas. Anyways, 
We're out of time. That pretty much covers all the new content for our series titled Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, 23-part series. That's a good chunk of labor. Amen? All right, I'm out of time. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to study your word partake in the very bread of life father thank you for setting us free thank you for informing us and revealing to us and showing us where the truth is that there's really only one source that is the word your word and thank you for being patient with us while you encourage us to seek out the truth in said word Father, we just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.